0: We have the time to make for God. It just depends on if we're willing. And now for repent and be baptized, part one. So today, the title of my sermon is repent and be baptized, Mark one verses one thirteen. Now, usually I would preach about my biggest challenge of the month. But to be quite frank, that wasn't working. The issue was, usually I wouldn't even know what my biggest challenge was until like three days before I preached. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until yesterday that I even knew what the biggest challenge for this month was, arguably. Wasn't even sure about it. So I'm going to start preaching on the biggest challenge of the previous month. But that requires an interlude. So today, I'm going to just talk scripture. And there's generally two ways that we read scripture. There's exegesis and there's eisegesis. This will be exegesis. Exegesis, for those of you that don't know, is a critical way of looking at scripture, where you try and understand what the authors meant by it versus eisegesis. Whenever you go to scripture and you insert your ideals, your opinions, your beliefs. So talking about Mark 1, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to just keep going with the hand mic. Yeah, don't need any more time for the technical errors. Firstly, let's talk about the origin of Mark. Now, Mark is an interesting text because Mark wasn't a disciple, but he learned from one of them. He followed Peter. The book of Mark is written slash penned by Mark, but it's actually the teachings of Peter to Mark which may seem odd, but the thing was Peter was multilingual, yet not sure of his Greek. So he had Mark travel with him so that Mark could make sure that the Greek was proof, so that the Greek was consistent and the message was made clear. And we know this to be the case because even though the book of Mark does not have the author explicitly written in it, this was actually common for people of that time. You had philosophers such as Hippocrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Varro. They never wrote their names, yet we know that they did write what they wrote, because of historical chains consistently referencing them. We see Mark being referenced as early as 125 AD by Pathias. He was interviewing individuals about Jesus's life back in 80 AD. We see it by Tertullian in 200 AD, and we see it by the Clements of Alexandria in 180 AD, showing that it was consistent and it was known by the early churches that this book was legitimately a gospel. It was a gospel meant for brevity, That was Mark saying, and nobody even questioned authenticity until 400 AD, but not going to talk about that exactly. So let's jump right into the scripture. I'm going to read a passage of it, and then I'm going to go back and explain. Verse 1, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began, just as the prophet Isaiah had written, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He has a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locust and wild honey. John announced, Someone is coming who is greater than I am, so much greater that I am not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So going up to verse one, the gospel begins in a very interesting way. And when you think of the gospels and the beginning of the gospels for Jesus, how they should begin, you will probably think that they should begin with Jesus. Whether the birth of Jesus or the beginning of his ministry. But the gospel doesn't begin with Jesus. It begins with John who prepared the way for Jesus. The gospel began with fulfilling various Old Testament prophecies. And it's not the beginning that we would expect, but it's still an empowering beginning nonetheless. And we see unique names being applied to Jesus. Another fun thing is that Christ actually isn't a last name. It's a title, if you didn't know. And Christ means Messiah. And whenever you heard Christ in the New Testament, there were a ton of Old Testament prophecies and expectations that were connected to the title. And that's not the only significant title we see Jesus being ordained with so early on. He was also referred to as the Son of God, which was showing his unique relationship with God, not something that we saw with other people. Continuing on down to say verse 3, this is just a minor thing. If you've read the word and you were trying to cross-reference it. You notice that he quotes from two passages, yet he only mentions one prophet. He quotes from Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 43, yet he only mentions the prophet Isaiah. This, also some fun, It's consistent throughout the Gospels. The reason why they did this was it was common for them to quote two prophets and only mention the one that was more well-known, the more renowned prophet or speaker. And we saw it here. Continuing on down, we see in verse 4. The introduction of John the Baptist. And John has an interesting view in the church. Whenever you hear the name John the Baptist, it may be easy to connect that to the doctrine of, you know, Baptist. To be quite frank, John had nothing to do with it today nor back then. John the Baptist, Baptist betterment, baptizer. What John did was a lot of baptizing. And what he was known for was just that, baptizer. The better translation is baptizer. And to be clear, it wasn't him sprinkling water on people. It was rather clear what he meant by baptizing, and that was to dunk. The word baptize directly means to immerse. In verse 5, we see all the people from Jerusalem going out to John. And to be quite frank, This is a figure of speech. It was not literally everybody. It was just the way that they spoke. And these may seem like nuanced things, but all I'm trying to do is explain scripture. Make sure that there's no misunderstandings, that you can go out and be clear in your word because it's easy for misunderstanding to lead us away from the faith, to see something that just doesn't quite add up or looks so improbable that it couldn't possibly be reasonable. And then we use that reason as an excuse to step away from the faith. Continuing on further, down to verse Six. Well, actually, for verse 5 still, with them confessing their sins, it's important to point out the flow of this. Firstly, they confessed. Firstly, they repented. And then they were baptized. The title of this sermon is Repent and Be Baptized. And the reason for that is simply because of the prerequisite that John placed upon baptism. That was repentance. Why would that be? Well, baptism is symbolic for having your sins washed away. But what good is having your sins washed away if you're just going to sin again? What good is having a temporary or one-time cleansing if you're just going to dirty yourself up right after? That was why repentance was a requirement. Now, of course, now we have Jesus that serves in the gap of what we cannot do because we can repent perhaps 80% of the time. But that 20% of the time, we know good. But Jesus serves as that ever-abounding grace. Continuing on further down to verse 6, I just want to point something out here. And that's the fact that John was living like the lowest of them. Later in scripture, we see that John is deemed the greatest born of woman. Yet he was living a real frugal life. He was eating honey and eating locusts. He wasn't living like a king. He was wearing uncomfortable garments. It's for certain that your living conditions today, about 10 times, if not more, better than John the Baptist were. The greatest born of woman, yet he was living like the least of them. And something else that's interesting to notice is that he calls the people out into the wilderness. This is symbolic because we see it time and time again in the Old Testament, for example, with Moses and the Israelites calling them out of Egypt. It's a place of source and to return to. Going down to verses 7 and 8, we now see the preparation for Jesus specifically. It took about eight verses to finally get to Jesus in the gospel, but here we start to see a switch with the preparation of Jesus. And the switch comes in verses 9, but still in this preparation, we see what's consistent, and that's repentance, as baptism washing away your sins, that's turning away from sins and turning to God. And something that's interesting is that Jesus serves to fulfill baptism. I say this in the sense that baptism has no real meaning if not for Jesus dying on the cross, and I'll elaborate on that a little bit further later. Now I'm going to read verses 9 through 11 and then explain those. It starts to get a bit more interesting with the introduction of Jesus, all right? Verses 9. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Verses 9 through 11. There's actually a lot that happened here, though. Firstly, with verse 9, we see a switch in language, and it may seem like something that's nuanced, but it holds great meaning. John goes from active voice, from being the focus of scripture, to passive voice. You can already guess who goes to active, Jesus. He becomes the focus of the scripture, because John had already prepared the way. And this, in a sense, is the passing of the baton. With the baptism of Jesus, now he takes the spotlight. And not only do we see the shift of language in a minor sense, but we see it in major things, such as he saw the heavens splitting apart and God speaking directly to Jesus with the focus primarily being on him. An interesting thing about the heavens splitting apart, this wasn't just symbolic. It wasn't just a vision that Jesus saw. But as we see later on in scripture with John 4, for example, that John saw it too. And since he could see it, this was a real scene that those present were able to observe. Which is beautiful because it tells us something about heaven. And it tells us exactly that heaven is not just an idea. Heaven is not just a state of being. Heaven is not just a mindset. Heaven is not merely within, but it's a real place too. And not only does it show that, but this great occurrence serves as a great foreshadowing of what Jesus would come to do talking about bringing justice, bringing righteousness, bringing love, being a sacrifice so that we may have eternal salvation upon the world. Continuing on, also because of the focus switch, it highlights a unique and perfect relationship with the Father. And lastly, for this particular portion, is that it's a Trinity passage. In my last sermon, I spoke about the difference between Trinitarianism and oneness. Oneness simply can't exist in this situation. Why? Because we see all individuals of the Trinity present. And it wouldn't make sense for different modes to simultaneously exist like that, nor confer with each other like that. We see the Son being a recipient of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and the declaration from the Father to the Son. Continuing on with the last portions, Mark 1, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals, and angels took care of him. Now, these are the portions that I have the most notes for. For starters, I got to say, Jesus was fully man and fully God. And because he was fully man and fully God in the flesh, he could experience our temptations. The interesting thing becomes, there's a little bit of a debate here. And the debate is called peccability versus impeccability. And what the debate brings into question is, though Jesus could be tempted, and we know this, could Jesus have sinned? Now, peccability would say that he can, and impeccability would say that he can't. There's no real argument about if he did sin, as we know he didn't on the basis of Hebrews 4.15. But the question of if he could sin is up for debate. He had the means to. He had the physical ability to. He had the external motivations to. But on the basis of impeccability, he couldn't. Let me tell you why. It's because as I said at first, he was fully man and fully God. And though he was able to be tempted, he never stopped possessing the character of God. And because he never stopped possessing the character of God, because there was no weakness of character in Jesus, he could not sin. We've heard it in scripture several times before where the word says he's not a man that he would lie. Or not a man that he could lie. Because Jesus still had the character of God, he could not sin. Now there are cases that peccability would make. Cases such as, it's not fair. Or cases such as, he couldn't have been human if he could not sin. But many times these cases are rooted in emotion. They're rooted in presumption. They're not rooted in scripture. And I mean, we've even heard it from a popular unnamed preacher. I'm not going to say his name, but I will give a hint by saying, hmm. But continuing on, he made the claim in a book that the only reason why Jesus did not sin was because of the Holy Spirit. And it's almost crazy, especially considering we know Jesus' ministry didn't start till he was 30. And we know that the Holy Spirit did not descend on him like a dove until he was 30. So that would mean that at the very least, he went 30 years without sinning. And the only question that could come to my mind is, have you ever even gone a week without sinning? What's the longest period of time y'all have gone without sinning? What's the longest period of time anybody but Jesus has gone without sinning? The claims are many times emotional, presumptive, and non-scriptural. Continuing on, the last refutation that individuals may make sometimes is in relation to the enemy. In the sense of, why would Satan even spend his time trying to tempt Jesus if he could not sin? One could also ask the question, why would Satan go to war with an all-knowing, all-powerful God? Why would Satan continue to resist and fight such a futile battle? The reason? Most likely pride. We cannot assume the enemy's thoughts. It's a similar thing in criminology. It's just common sense. You can't tell what another individual is thinking, but we can see by consistent past behavior that the enemy will do things even if they cannot win. The enemy will do them in a sense of inflated ego, just fighting and ever losing an impossible to win battle. And the enemy is realistically fighting a battle with you in your life right now. This may seem like a large switch, but the enemy is still fighting that futile battle against heaven. And who is he going to attack the most? Believers. And when is he going to attack the most? All the time. You may be facing things that you weren't facing two weeks ago, struggling with some new sin or thorn, and you don't know where it came from. It's why we always need to be sober. For the enemy prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour Because the enemy would love for you to fall out of faith. The enemy would love for you to not open your word or bow your head in prayer. And I mean, you may be saying, you know, I'm busy. Maybe the enemy is pushing you away from God through a seeming opportunity, especially if it's materialistic. It's real easy to think, you know, if I can just get some stuff, I'll be good. And then once we get that stuff, you know, with inflation, that stuff that was real valuable a month ago, it's nothing now. So if I could just get some more stuff, I'd be good. But even in your busy times, in the moments of freedom, If you're in school and you're studying, you're working jobs after. When you're walking the halls between classes, just praying silently and as much as you possibly can. If you're on the job, making sure that in those five-minute intervals between doing tasks that you're getting in your word. Making sure that you're reading the verse of the day. Even if you're just reading the chapter of the day, on average, it'll only take you three to five minutes. We have the time to make for God. It just depends on if we're willing. And it's easy for the enemy to move in a subtle way that even looks good for us. And so we let our guards down. And when we don't think that we're fighting a battle and our guards are down, we're most vulnerable. So stay aware, stay alert, for the enemy prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And though Jesus steps in as an intermediator between us and the Father, any time that we fall short and every time we come to God before prayer, we should still do the best that we can to fight the fight for the kingdom. And continuing on, there's the last verse, verse 13. And it references the wilderness again. But it's in a different sense, right? Because the biggest instance of the wilderness we can think of in the past was the Israelites. And the Israelites oftentimes are not spoken of in a positive sense. Because many times, they just don't do right by God. Whether it be their kings or the people themselves, many times they are not in alignment with God's will. And that was especially the case with Moses. Whenever they were brought out of Egypt by the miracles, they still, whenever they saw the Egyptians chasing after them, did not trust God for deliverance. And they said it would have been better to just remain slaves in Israel than to die out here. They didn't trust God. God came through. Whenever he provided them food via manna, you know, they were good. They had all that they could eat. They got tired of the taste and they pleaded for something different. They wanted meat and then they got so much meat that odds are they ended up complaining about that, too. The Israelites did not do right by God in regards to food, so on and so forth, but Jesus did. Many times when we see references to the Old Testament, and it involves Jesus, it's about him writing some wrong or failure that we saw done in the past, and here was no different. <laughs> Jesus went out into the wilderness, and he succeeded in the face of temptation and the enemy. And with the angels that were taking care of him, odds are this was just to show us his dependence because he still had a fleshly body. He was fully God and he was fully man. He had the flesh. He had the needs and the angels took care of him. But that same dependence only showed his increasing vulnerability to the enemy. This is my sermon today. And I know it's probably a lot heavier than things I've preached in the past. I've never quite done something like this. But even this is a series because I only have a 23 minute time limit and I was only able to get through 13 verses. So it's tough, it's deep, but it's applicable to all. Repent and be baptized. Part one. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night. You are listening to brothersoftheword.com. This was part one of the series titled Repent and Be Baptized by George Bronner. This message is number 4110, that's 4110. To listen to thousands of free messages or to send this message number 4110 to a friend, go to brothersoftheword.com. If this message has been a blessing to you and you would like to help support this ministry, go to Iwanttogive.com. That's Iwanttogive.com. Listen to brothers of the word.com often because, brother, you need the word.